Uh, up until this point, we, we have highlighted uh, various people in the Old Testament, but really, we haven't focused so much on, on the perspective of people in the Old Testament as much as the perspective of God and, and, and really what he's been doing through the Old Testament. Because I keep talking about this every time I get up here. You will notice that as we go through this timeline, you see that bad things happen as a result of sin. Adam and Eve sinned. The world was cursed. And as a result of that, we're broken. Like we are utterly broken. And because of that, throughout the Old Testament history, you see people just making crazy, dumb decisions. And, and only when God intervenes do things start to look like they're going well. And we've seen that in the lives of Adam and Eve and in Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David, and now we're going to continue to see that. So I'm going to give you an overview of kings, uh, the kings of Israel. So last time we talked about King David and how the fact that they even had a king um, was kind of a rebellion against God, saying, you, we don't want you, God. We don't want you to be over us. We don't want you to be our king. We want to, be, we want to have a king like the rest of these nations. And God said, okay, because this was part of the plan from the beginning. He had told Moses this was going to happen. So he says, I will give you a king. And he gives them a bad king at first. But then they have David who follows after God. And what we're going to see is that David, he, his attitude towards God, though he made huge mistakes, he made huge mistakes, and we didn't talk about those. But if you go and read through the, uh, the, the last, um, 2 Samuel 11 and on, if you go read through that, you'll see that David made two huge mistakes. And, and he's held accountable for that. But in the midst of those mistakes, he never drifts away from God. He always goes back to God in repentance, in sorrow. You read so many Psalms where he's just like brokenhearted. And he goes back to God and he, he, he seeks after God even when he screws up in really huge ways. The end of 2 Samuel talks about him um, becoming greedy and treating Israel as though it was his own. And he takes the census, which they were told not to do unless God told them to do it. Because the census was like a way of taking inventory of your stuff. So when King David says, I'm going to take an inventory, a census of all, the, of all the land, it's almost like he's saying, I am going to see everything that has, I have accumulated was the idea. And God is not pleased with this. He says, this is not yours, it's mine. And 70,000 people end up dying in an act of judgment because David did this thing. And that's, that's, that just blows your mind. And I think that we all know the other one where he, he commits adultery and then has a child by this woman and then kills her husband and then his, the child dies because of sickness that God curses because of the sin that he's done. And these horrible things happen. And yet the Bible says that his heart did not turn from God. Yeah, he had these incredible moments of weakness, but he didn't turn from God. He always went back in sorrow and pleaded with God for forgiveness. His sons won't be that way. Um, a lot of his sons won't be that way. Um, so through Kings, you see that he has a son, Solomon. And remember, we talked about specifically that, 
that he wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build God a temple. But God said, no, you're, you're a man of war. You have committed these sins. You, you, cannot, you, you will not be the guy that builds this house. Your sons will. So he makes the preparations, but his son Solomon is the one who does it. And during the time of Solomon there, because of his dad's success and because of Solomon's wisdom that he asks for from God and it's granted to him, he has the most prosperous time in the nation. They have incalculable wealth. Like all the nations are coming to him for wisdom and coming to them to see the amazing thing that's going on in Israel. And he builds this temple and he dedicates it to God and things are going well for a while. But it doesn't stay that way. You can read in uh, 1 Kings 11. Go ahead and turn there. We'll read that portion. This is where things just start to turn. And if you need a Bible, we'll we'll be looking at several passages this morning. Of course, they're, all, they're on the bar. I think everybody that's here knows that. If you need one, just raise your hand. We'll get one to you. First um, Kings 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. The, the daughter of Pharaoh was his original wife. He loved Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Foreigners. From the nations concerning which the, the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to those in, these in love. If you've never heard this before, prepare to be floored. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and from Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their God. Verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David." my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So he does this, what you would think is this unthinkable thing. And we've seen this before, sadly. Like God is sitting right there on Mount Sinai talking to Moses and all the Israelites below him say, we need gods, let's make some gods. And Aaron says, okay, so they go do it. We've seen this before, and you have this similar picture here where they've just built this magnificent temple. Like this thing was just covered in gold and jewels and silver and like every good thing that they could get. This thing was incredible. And, and they built it right in the middle to signify God's presence with us, this temple. He lives with us. 
So it's similar. Like they're on the mountain. They build these calves. They have this temple they've just built. The whole nation's been involved in building this thing. And now Solomon says, let's go build some idols on these mountaintops because of these wives that he's taken. It's just this unthinkable thing. And because of that, God says, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands. But really important there, he preserves Jerusalem. Judah is kept. So Solomon has a son, Rehoboam, and he's an idiot. You can read about him in uh, the next chapter, chapter 12. Uh, He is going to take over as king after his father uh, dies. And the people come to him. I'll just kind of summarize so we don't have to read through the whole thing. The people come to him and they say, listen, your dad, uh, he was a great guy and all, but he made us work really hard. Like, we've built up all this wealth, but we've become, he was kind of a workaholic. And, and he's just like made us work all the time. Nothing but work, work, work all the time, work. And, and it would be cool, again, paraphrasing, if you could lighten the load a little bit. You know, we're doing pretty well. I don't know if you've looked around. So they come to him and they ask him this thing. And so he takes counsel with two different groups. One group is with his dad's counselors, older guys, know what they're doing a little bit more. And they say, you need to, you need to take this seriously. You need to come out and appease these people. You need to speak nice to them. You need to try to win their favor. And he says, okay, thanks for that. Then he goes and talks to his young buddies that he's grown up with, his, his foolish friends. And they say... Uh, something entirely different. So let's, let's just see what he says, whose counsel he's taken. We'll tease it out here. Verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people, Jeroboam was one of his father's servants high up. Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day. Sorry, did I say this is verse 12? Chapter 12, verse 12. Sorry. As the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, May My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So... He, he essentially incites a rebellion against himself by saying, listen, I'm going to blow you out of the water. You thought dad was bad. I'm going to make this really bad for you. So uh, there are 11 tribes, 12 tribes total, but with regard to the, the way that they split the kingdom, 10 of the tribes of Israel end up splitting off. They go with this guy, Jeroboam, who was mentioned in verse 12 which God had actually come to him and promised him, hey, this is going to happen. You're going to take the the majority kingdom. You're going to take Israel with you, and you're going to be king over Israel. And he said, obey my statutes. He told this to Jeroboam. And and Rehoboam gets Judah and Jerusalem. So like they're in the south down here. And then the 10 tribes and the the entire rest of Israel is up here. Much bigger, much more people. They just don't have Jerusalem, their capital city. So they split into two kingdoms. And that does not really go well for them. Jeroboam, the the guy who becomes king of the north, he does not follow God's commandments and statutes, even though God had said, follow my commandments and statutes. Instead, 
he says, he turned, he, he's purely political. And he says, listen, we've got all these people living up here. We've got, we've got the 10 tribes. We've got the most people, the most stuff. Things are great. Uh, but if the people go down to Jerusalem, to the temple, to sacrifice there and to continue to uh, maintain rituals and to, and to feast there and have festivals there, then, then they are going to still consider themselves part of that kingdom. So what we ought to do is prevent them from going down to Jerusalem to this temple. And so what he does is he says, we're going to have our own temple. We're going to have our own holy places up here in the north so that they don't have to go down there. As a matter of fact, we'll forbid them from going down there and we'll stay up here and be us. Not good. Not good. So God says, I am going to destroy every one of your family until they're all gone. And that eventually happens. And that's kind of the story for the north, the northern kings. There's like one good one, maybe two, in a big line of kings. I meant to bring up a chart just so you could kind of get an idea, like bad, 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 bad kings. Like all of them repeat this sin. And it's specific in saying throughout kings, all of the kings of the north, the kings of Israel, it says they continued in the sin of Jeroboam. And so it just gets worse and worse. And, and it occasionally comments and says, they did even worse than their fathers did. Worse and worse and worse. So it gets worse. For the most part, for the majority of the history, the king, kings in the south do well to follow the commandment of the Lord. They, there's a couple of slip-ups where they build uh, idols in the south also. But for the most part, for a long time, the kings in the south do better in following God. The only thing that God has against them continually is that they don't tear down those idols. Like a bad king will come up, build idols to other gods. The next king will come up and say, that was bad, stop doing that. But they don't tear all that down. So people continue to go and worship there. So you've got, you've got people in the north and now the south worshiping somebody other than Yahweh worshiping somebody other than the God that brought them up out of Egypt. And this is a horrible thing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get graphic here and tell you, give you a little example of why this is a horrible thing. These gods that they followed after, it was Satan. Like, it was Satan. They have all these names that they have come up with and all these places. But this was Satan that they were following after. Uh, the, the name Baal, Baalzebub is used at one point in time, uh, which we've heard Baal, Baalzebub. Uh, all, all of these incarnations are essentially them chasing after Satan. And, and they did horrible things. Uh, there are no little kids in the room. So some of the things that they would do, and you hear about this when... Um, in one particularly uh, epic confrontation with Elijah, you see that uh, they are trying to offer up a, a sacrifice to their God, Baal. And, and so they cry out to him and he doesn't listen. So they're like, we have to get his attention. And Elijah's just kind of mocking them, egging them on, because he knows this is not a real God. This is not the God. There's only one God. They start cutting themselves. They start dismembering themselves and and harming themselves, trying to get the attention of this God. So one of their practices is that they will cut themselves, dismember themselves in sacrifice to this God. Another one of their sacrifices is that they'll give their children, 
There was, uh, and this is extra biblical uh, history related to these heathen gods in, in Babylonia and some other places. They had these giant iron pots that they would heat up. And they would throw live babies into these giant fire pots and have them cooked alive for these gods. Another one, uh, they had a ritual where they wanted to try to bring rain during times of dry season. So they would have these orgies. And the thought was, if we stimulate this God enough, he will excrete rain on all of us by having these orgies in his presence. Like, this is the sort of thing that's going on now. And so you wonder why God gets a little upset. This is like unspeakable stuff. That, these, these pictures now, we burn in your head forever. And, and you think, you know, is this a big deal? Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. The nation of Israel is now doing this to their own harm. And so it gets worse and worse and worse. Go to 2 Kings chapter 14. We'll dig into that chapter a little bit. Go to verse 23. So there's another king in Israel. He names himself Jeroboam. He's Jeroboam II. Jeroboam I was the guy who started all this mess. Besides Solomon, Jeroboam was the guy who said, we're going to take it even further. So this guy names himself Jeroboam II. Because you kind of get a hint as to where he's going. Um, I guess he didn't name himself that, but his parents. Um, so in verse 23, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that's the king in the south, Jeroboam, the, the son of Joash, lots of Joashes around here, it was confusing, king of Israel, so he's the king of the north, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had, had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So, you have this bad king. And in a line of bad kings. And things are just going south. And it gets to the point that these other kingdoms are beginning to raid the north. The Syrians in particular come in and they raid the north. And they are obliterating areas of the border. So they're, they're like taking out chunks of the border. And during this time, God says, in order to preserve you, I'm going to grant you military success. I'm going to help you win back these borders. Not, for the, not because they did anything good. It says plainly he was evil. But they, he did, God did that in order so that they would not be blotted out, so that they would not be totally destroyed. And he, this word that God is going to do this comes by this man, Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. And so even though things are evil and things are bad and, and it's not going well, 
during this time, they have some success. And it looks like God is preserving them. And so Jonah gets an idea that things are going relatively well for us. He's a man from the north, from the tribe of Zebulun. He lives up here with these kings. So we're going to focus on Jonah today. Now that we've gotten to him, let's see what happens with him. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. It might take you a while to find it. It took me a while. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. He's right after Obadiah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Assyria is one of their enemies. So we just, we just read back in Kings how, how they're fighting back for their borders. Assyria is one of the people that they're fighting back to. So this is one of their present enemies. And, and God has already told Jonah before, we're going to fight back and take back these borders. And now he's telling him, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is like, I don't know if it's the capital city at this point in time, but it, it has been one of the, through history, one of the capital cities of Assyria one of Israel's greatest enemies, one of their greatest enemies. Pretty soon, Assyria is going to do really bad things to Israel. Um, So they are bitter enemies, bitter rivals. But God is now coming to Jonah and he's saying, hey, go to Nineveh and call out against them because of their evil. You would think that he would be happy to do that, right? It's like, yes, this is it. God's going to lay down the hammer and, and he's going to save us. That's, I would think that that would be the opinion. That's not what he thinks, though, and we'll get his opinion here in a little while. He does the opposite. It says, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he, so he paid the fare, went down into it with them. So he's trying to run away from God which in itself is odd. It's just like, if he knows anything about God, you know that he's over creation. He's over everything. And so how do you run away from God? Well, he's going to find out. Verse four, he gets in this boat. They go across. He's trying to run away. He's going the opposite direction. And it says, verse four, the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So these guys, these guys are not Israelites. They are, um, I'm sorry, they might, they might be Israelites, but they're, they're not God worshipers. They're crying out to their own gods. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and laid down and was what? Fast asleep. He's like, not bothered. He's, whatever. So you get this... This, this really weird picture, Jonah is not like most of the other prophets. It seems like the, quote, bad guys in this story are the only ones who are really paying attention. And he's the guy who is doing the opposite of what God wants him to do. So God tells him, go, preach to these people. He says, I don't think so. And now he's on this boat. And now these guys who don't believe in God are crying out to their God saying, please save us. But the, the man of God who's in the boat is sitting asleep. He doesn't care. And so he has this really like 
careless attitude. And so the captain, verse 6, comes to him and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? I don't, I, that's, that must be an odd translation. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. So he's saying, come on. We cannot just sit and die. Perhaps the God will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. So they are, they're scolding him, saying, call out to God. Verse 7, they, came, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come to us. And what is your occasion? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He knows. You're trying to run away from the God who made the sea and the dry land. And so they hear this and they say, they're exceedingly afraid, verse 10. And he says, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they, they're on to him. They know what's up. And they try, they try to keep going. They try to say, let's just, let's just see if we can make it through this. But it, it does not relent. The storm gets worse and worse. They say, we're going to die. So this is odd. Jonah has a suggestion Verse 12, he said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. It's like, I'm not going to jump out there or anything, but if you want to, you could pick me up and throw me out there. It's just like, this guy, he's very, it just seems like he's apathetic. Um, he's like, I'm not going to do it, but if you want me to, or if you want to, you could throw me out into the sea. So they, they do. They try, they try, it doesn't work, but they, they throw him into the sea. And as they do it, they pray to God, like his God. Verse 14, they called out to the Lord. Before it was saying God, lowercase, like their gods. But now it's saying they called out to the Lord, Yahweh. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked him up and they hurled him in the sea. And immediately it stops. But, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, you really get this idea that God is over creation. And you get, you get this picture that it was, it was just foolish for, for Jonah to run away. It's like, where are you going to go? And God very visibly demonstrates you cannot go anywhere. You have said yourself, I own the sea. I made it. I made the land. I made the animals. There's an, there's an interesting emphasis on animals in this book. Um, he, he, he calls this animal, and we're not going to argue over whale versus fish and, and like all the sign science behind this. Because if you believe that God can make something out of nothing, then you can believe that he took a fish and, and used it to carry Jonah somewhere, miraculously. Um, it's, it's worth, you know, maybe trying to ponder, but don't freak out about it. Um, so <clears throat> he does this, and he's in this fish for three days. I don't know what he's thinking at that point in time, but he begins to pray in chapter 2. 
He prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you have heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up me upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You would think that this is like a turning point for him. He's, he's, he's totally now focused on God. God. Okay, it took a giant storm and a massive fish swallowing me and me sitting in here for three days, but I finally turned around. You would think that that's his mentality. He, he gives credit to God saying that you have, have done this and that you are the only way of salvation. And you would think that's all he needs. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited him out upon the dry land. Love that they use the word vomited. Um, so the, the word of the Lord comes to him again in that moment and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah went to Nineveh and he preaches to them. And what do they do? They, they respond. He, said, he says to them, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, he says in verse 9. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So these evil guys, these guys who, who are worshiping these idols that we just talked about, that are enemies of Israel, have been told now, God is going to judge you. They now respond in faithfulness and they say, we need to repent because of this thing that we have done. We have sinned against God. And so the king, the king and the commoners, everybody in the land weeps and fasts and asks God for forgiveness. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do, and he did not do it. So, that's amazing. And you would think maybe, maybe even now, if this country were to worship God, maybe now they could become an ally, right? If we're all worshiping God together, maybe, maybe God is doing an amazing thing here. You know, you would think that this would be cause for celebration. The, the Assyrians, our enemies, 
are now pleading to our God who established us and, and they're asking him for forgiveness for all these horrible things that, he had, that, that they had done. You'd think that that would be amazing, but that is not his attitude. Chapter four, verse one, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I, when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What in the world? So he gives you his reason there. I'm spitting. That his reason for running away was not because like he was scared of going to Assyria, like they're going to kill me if I tell them about our God. His reason wasn't anything other than that he thought God was going to forgive his enemies. And he said, I won't have it. I'm running away. And he's so angry about it that he says, just kill me. God answers him in verse four and says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself, a booth meaning like a little tent. <clears throat> and he sat under, the t under it in the shade till he should see what, the, what would become of the city. So it's like he's just waiting for like hailstones or something. I don't know. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. He's like in this desert wasteland under the heat. So God raises up this plant for mad old Jonah stewing under his tent. And it says it would be a shade over his head to shade him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But, Jonah, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, and this is huge. This is it. This is the whole book. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 100 and 20,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Interesting that he throws in the cattle. <laughs> this is the whole book. That statement right there. This is an interesting situation, and it relates to us maybe more than we think, because it's Jonah questioning God, questioning God's heart, questioning whether or not he should have mercy on evil people. And he's saying to God, you, you should not have mercy on these people. You should let them die. They are horrible. And I would rather die than see them forgiven. 